Let us pray together. Father, once again, we bow before you knowing that you are our God, that you are our great God, the one who and in whom is all things. So we come before you this morning to worship you and to hear from you, to open our hearts and our minds, to hear your word, to understand it, to have the implications of it bear upon our hearts and minds that we might be changed by it, and that our lives would every moment and increasingly be a more honor and glory to you until the day of glory. We'll praise you for it all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn in them, if you would, to Luke chapter 2, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 10. You'll notice I entitled our message this morning with one word that would not make a good Puritan title. But it's our privilege this morning to return to our study of Luke chapter 10. Last Lord's Day we were confronted with the sobering reminder in our study of this gospel that there are severe consequences for rejecting the gospel. To hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to refuse to believe That really is what's happening when a person doesn't embrace God's good news. They're rejecting Jesus. It isn't as if they just simply don't understand. It isn't as if they don't have all of the right information. And if that information is explained to them in such a certain way, with certain terminology and with certain Uh, in a demeanor that seems to come across in a way that's acceptable to them, that if all of their potential questions are answered, all of the potential conundrums in their mind when they think about God and the gospel, if those are all met with satisfaction, then somehow they would believe. Therefore, if that doesn't happen, then they didn't actually reject Jesus. They They just didn't understand Therefore, they can't be held accountable before God. Perhaps there were some even sitting here last week like that. To not listen and to thereby embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior is to reject the only Savior there is. There is no other Savior. There is no other way in which someone can be Saved. To reject Him is to reject God. In fact, that is exactly what Jesus says in verse 16 to those whom He had sent out with the Gospel. He said, the one who listens to you listens to Me. The one who rejects you rejects Me. And he who rejects Me rejects the one who sent Me. I.e., to reject the Gospel is to reject Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject God. That reality is sobering and shocking because so many reject. As I said, even last Lord's Day as we were here together and we were walking through this text, there were unbelievers in our midst who heard what was said. They probably even opened the Bible and read the text. 
Jesus' very words. This is the creator God, the God of the entire universe, the one who made us, and here he is saying to us these very words. They heard it, and yet even as this week has gone on, I've not heard of one who subsequently embraced Jesus Christ. Not one. Sad, sobering, eternally heartbreaking, knowing the consequences that await that kind of rejection. And it was, it was into this harvest that Jesus had sent out the 70 disciples. It was into that kind of circumstance, into that kind of world, in order that they might preach about him. They were to go throughout the region to which he was sending them, a region to which he was soon to come and to pass through as he's on his way resolutely to go to Jerusalem in order to carry out the very plan of God's redemption whereby he would die on a cross undeservedly so that the sins of all whom God would save would be satisfied. They're going out through this region to prepare the people by means of the good news to come to Jesus. And while many rejected, some believed. Some came to believe in Jesus Christ. And so the 70 returned with great joy, with rejoicing. They're they're happy. And it is this joy that we are to think about and to learn from today. You surely have noticed that I said earlier and even gave this title in your notes probably the title Joy. Why? Because the joy of the 70 is a stark contrast to the joy of Jesus. I find that interesting. There is much we can learn from it when we compare them together. And I want to do that for us this morning as we look at this text. Follow along as I read for us verses 17 to 24. The 70 returned with joy. You say, Pastor, where do you get your titles for your messages? There you go. I'm not a rocket scientist. I just look at the text and say this is what it's about. Joy. The 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And at that very time, he, that is Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see, and did not see them. 
and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. What, what a wonderful reality to see Christians obeying their Savior. Right? The 70 had obeyed the command of Jesus. Go into the harvest and preach the gospel. Go and do what I say. These were true believers. They had put their faith in Jesus Christ, and through that faith they are practicing obedience to Him by denying themselves and following Him. They are doing what God has asked them to do. Their allegiance was a discernible reality because it's seen in their obedience. We know they, are, they have an allegiance to Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're doing what Christ says. They're obeying Jesus Christ. They loved the Lord, and so they did what He commanded them. And upon their return, they are filled with joy. Jesus had told them, that they were sheep going into the midst of wolves. <clears throat> they trusted Him. They knew it was going to be troublesome. They did what He asked. Surely the circumstances weren't great. Surely they met opposition. They were rejected a lot. But in spite of all of that negative, in spite of all that was taking place, they saw some success. And they come back rejoicing. However, their rejoicing was misplaced in comparison to Jesus' rejoicing, which is not misplaced. Why were they joyful? Why were they joyful? Well, first of all, we ought to always be joyful, right? The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 4, Verse 4, rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's what Paul says. It doesn't matter how life goes. It doesn't matter the circumstances of life. What the Lord allows in our life, we are to be rejoicing. Right? We need to be rejoicing, and our rejoicing needs to be rightly directed. Right? Paul says in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord. That, that's the, the object, the direction, the, the way in which our rejoicing is directed. But that's not what we see here. You notice in verses 17 and 18, these faithful believers, they had gone out, they had done what Jesus had given them to do, they had evangelized the lost, and after they do that, they come back and they give the reason for their joy. They say, Lord, verse 17, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Demons are subject to us, they say. Demons are just fallen angels. We understand that, right? All of the angelic realm has been created by God. They are created beings. They were created in a state, in a, in a state of what I would say unconfirmed holiness, much like Adam and Eve in the beginning, and yet a third of the angelic realm followed Satan. They followed Satan. He chose to rise up in pride, sought equality with God, he refused to submit himself to God, his creator, and in his pride he led a rebellion against God. A third of the angelic realm went with him. He swept them away with himself. And God, through his sovereign justice, subjected them to futility and condemned them to hell where they will spend all of eternity. 
But in the meantime, God has allowed Satan and his minions to roam the earth. Satan controls his own followers, the demons, and attempting all the time to thwart the plan of God through their lies and through their deception. They are trying to ensure that God doesn't save anyone. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says they deceive unbelievers. Unbelievers. How do they do that? Well, 1 Timothy 4 says they use false teachers to spread, get this, the doctrines of demons which pervert the truth of the Bible and the Gospels. So lies about God are demonic. They are from the pit of hell. They are doctrines of demons. They are teachings of demons. And so we see here that Jesus has delegated His power over demons to these 70. And through the preaching of the Gospel, they recognized that power And they recognized that it was subject to them. People were being saved. People were being drawn out from the domain of darkness through the preaching of Jesus Christ. They were being, as Colossians 1 says, transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. And the 70 are ecstatic about this. They're ecstatic about what they are doing. And so they tell Jesus about it. Even the demons are subject to your name. And he says to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. This is an interesting verse. There are a lot of differing views on this verse, what's being said. In fact, I had a conversation with one of us last Lord's Day who came up to me and was asking about this. And we were talking about this verse. And I just want to give a bit more of an answer than I did in my message last week. It seems that the popular idea here is that Jesus is speaking about the fall of Satan. When Satan himself fell in Isaiah chapter 14, and you can read about it specifically, verse 12, where he said, I will be like God, I will be like God. And while I can understand that idea, I I understand the reality of that when he says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I can understand where it goes there, but it doesn't seem to me to fit the context. It doesn't seem to me to fit what Jesus is saying in context, and I'll tell you why. Because the grammar in the original language here seems to be indicating that this was a continual reality, not a one-time reality like happened in a... It's recorded for us in Isaiah 14. It wasn't a single event. If it would have been the fall of Satan, then it would have been a single event that Jesus was talking about. But the grammar here seems to indicate otherwise. The verb here, which is used, which is translated, I was watching, is in the imperfect tense. That may not seem like a lot to much of us because we don't think of our English in those ways most of the time. But it gives the flavor to the language that this is a continual reality rather than Jesus simply saying, yeah, that's great, but I saw Satan fall. In other words, yeah, it's great that you have power over demons, which I give you. It's the whole power. But listen, I was there when Satan fell. That doesn't seem to make much sense in the context. And I believe that's why he describes it as being like lightning falling from the sky. Lightning doesn't just happen once. When a storm comes through and lightning happens, it is a storm and it's ongoing. 
And so I believe the context here would indicate that Jesus isn't simply talking about that. I believe the idea here is that Jesus is saying that he was observing in a practical sense, the practical demise of Satan's domain as those who are being saved, as, as through the gospel, the power of the gospel that saves, they're being snatched out of the kingdom of darkness and they are being transferred into the kingdom of his own son. How is that happening? Through the preaching of the gospel. Jesus is just saying, yeah, in my omniscience, I was seeing that happen. Those were being snatched down and brought in. Satan was falling like lightning. It was happening over and over and over again. In fact, in fact, exuberant joy, the Bible tells us, fills heaven when sinners are saved. Exuberant joy. Notice over in chapter 15, verse 7, it says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus, of course, talking to the Pharisees who are unwilling to go anywhere for anyone who needed help. He says, listen, heaven rejoices greatly over just one sinner. Verse 10 says similar thing in Luke chapter 15. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so this reality of sinners being taken out and heaven rejoicing and, and the, the joy that Christ would have because of that is so different. And so Jesus says to them in nine, verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. In other words, while the powers of Satan and his forces are strong, and while they do all they can to deceive and to confuse and to lie, never forget this, Never forget this. That's what behold means. Behold means you better pay attention to this. Realize this. Pay attention. I have given. That's the perfect tense verb. I have given. In other words, it's Christ who bestows this. You don't get it on your own. The power bestowed for them was not their own. It had come with Christ's authority and it had continuing effects. We can never forget, beloved, that as Christians, we don't have the power over Satan. Right? Ephesians chapter 6 says, we resist the devil and he flees from us. How do we resist? By holding on to the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of truth. We have authority, but it's not inherent authority in us. We have the authority of Christ. We're in the gospel. We don't go around rebuking Satan. We just go around preaching the truth. To crush serpents and scorpions. He's speaking metaphorically. I said that last week. These are the ancient agents of wickedness, the agents of pain, trouble. So we preach good news to the oppressed. That's why Paul says, that, says it that way, I believe in Ephesians chapter 6, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We resist by obeying and standing on the authoritative word. And Jesus is saying, listen, I, I've given you authority. Even the demons were subject in the name of Christ. And so the 70 are reminded. I think they were really seeing, not necessarily that they were going, I rebuke Satan, get out of this. I think they were just going to preach the gospel and there were demon-possessed people being saved and they were in their right minds after that and they recognized that the gospel, the name of Jesus Christ, had power to change that kind of life. 
And so the 70 are reminded by Christ that it was not their own power, not their own wisdom, not their own cleverness. It's not their own way of forming sentence structure and making sure the environment's right and all these kinds of things that's saving these people. No, it's because of Him. It's because of Jesus Christ they have power to overcome anything. And while all of that is wonderful, and we sit here and we resonate with that as Christians, we go, yes, it's wonderful. We have the gospel. It is the power of God and salvation, as, first, as Romans chapter 1 says. It is not that in which we find our true joy. Do you find that shocking? It's not that, hey, we have the gospel, we'll go out and we'll share the gospel, and look at people are getting saved, and we come back and we're exuberant about that. We ought to be thankful. Heaven rejoices. But that's not our greatest joy. We must find our greatest joy in being simply a child of God. But Jesus says in verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. He's not saying don't ever have joy that that people are being snatched out, that the powers of hell are being overcome by the gospel. He's not saying don't ever have joy in that. He says don't let that be your supreme joy that the spirits are subject to you. That's not your great joy, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Why is that to be our greatest joy? Because God may allow the forces of evil to bring trials in our lives. <laughs> you see, you may go, Lord, but I'm preaching the gospel. I'm doing what you say. I'm obeying your commands, and I'm still finding all this trouble. God may allow that. Don't forget about Job. God may allow us to suffer here on this earth in ways that are unprecedented. It may seem as if at times Satan's winning. And all by means of God's allowance. But there's one thing he cannot touch with us. One thing God doesn't allow Satan to have any room touching us with. You know what that is? Our salvation. You don't need to rejoice that you have some kind of ability to preach the Word of God great and people get saved and all that kind of stuff. That's wonderful. Yes, people are being saved. All that's nice. But rejoice in this fact that you're saved and Satan can't touch that. The Bible tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Oh, how sad it is that when we as Christians who say we believe in Jesus Christ then doubt the reality that we're truly saved to the end. Jesus said nothing can touch us. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And so while we may find joy in the fact that Satan's kingdom is being vanquished through the gospel, and we ought to be thankful for that, that through the faithfulness of God, the gospel is going out, that the people are being saved. I mean, we're told to beseech the one who's over the harvest, beseech him to send out more laborers into the harvest. Remember that back in verse 2? Pray to that end. Beseech God while we're doing the work, we're to go there. But our greatest joy is to be in the fact that God's grace has shined upon us in such that we are his children. That our names are written in heaven, never to be removed. That is our greatest joy in the Lord. And so the 70 had a misplaced joy, at least at first. And Jesus needs to adjust their thinking a bit. 
And sometimes we can be like that. We find great joy in the successes of our life in Christ. We start to pat ourselves on the back sometimes. We say, Lord, look what's happening. Look what you're doing. This is awesome. In fact, look what we're accomplishing for you. Look how many are coming to Jesus. Let me mark my belt. Let me put the notches on my wall. Look what we've become. We have a misplaced joy. And so Jesus gives us an example of properly placed joy. Notice what he says in verses 21 through 24. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And so turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are your eyes which see the things you see. And for I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things you see and didn't see them, to hear the things you hear and didn't hear them. I find it interesting, at the very time of the 70s, rejoicing for what they had accomplished, Jesus rejoices by means of the work of the Holy Spirit. And he rejoices because of three truths. Three truths that I want to highlight for us here. Truth number one is this. Jesus rejoices because God is sovereign. Jesus rejoices in the reality of God's sovereignty. Notice verse 21, at the very time Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. The word... Words in the English, well-pleasing, is an interesting word in the original language. Just one word in the original language, but it's translated well-pleasing here. It's eudakia, and it means that which brings perfect, satisfying pleasure. That which brings perfect, satisfying pleasure. And of course, here in verse 21, it's referring to that which brings God perfect, satisfying pleasure. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. Jesus is speaking with his heavenly Father. He's speaking to God, the one who is Lord, the one who is the master and ruler of heaven and earth. And he's rejoicing because God the Father is well-pleased by what he had done. He's rejoicing to the Father that God is acting according to His very sovereignty. I'm thankful for what you have done. I praise you for your sovereign plan. I praise you for your sovereign action. In other words, God, I thank you that you always do what brings you perfect, satisfying pleasure. Well, what is that? What is that here in this case? What is that in the context? Well, it's this, that God in His sovereignty has revealed that which was hidden in ages past 
not to the wise, not to the intelligent, but to those who are babes. Jesus says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. Jesus is referring to these things. What things? He's speaking about the truth of himself. That's the things he's talking about. The things of the gospel. He's speaking about the good news. All that was true about him. All that is true of Jesus Christ. He is the God-man. He is the one who came from heaven. The incarnate one. God who came from heaven and, and became man. As Ephesians or as Philippians chapter 2 clearly tells us. He's celebrating that God has shown that Jesus is God in the flesh through the power and nature over demons and over the things of nature and death, through the miracles that he did. God attested to us. Acts chapter 2 says, as Peter's preaching, God attests through Jesus by means of miracles and signs that he did. In other words, everything about the life of Jesus is what Jesus is speaking about when he says these things. So Jesus, in other words, is saying, I rejoice, Father, that you are sovereign over all things. He says, I rejoice that those things that you are sovereign over include those who know me and those who do not know me. Now think about that. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God incarnate here on this earth is rejoicing to the Father concerning sovereign election. Sovereign election. That God did not bring about a plan of salvation that is attainable through or by those who have the intellectual ability to figure it out. That understanding the gospel is not linked to human wisdom. It is not linked to human intellect. In other words, salvation, beloved, is not something that is for those with a certain amount of brain power and a certain level of IQ. It doesn't matter what your natural intellect is. It doesn't matter what your natural thinking power is. It doesn't matter how much education you've had. It is only understood by means of God opening your eyes and making you alive. Salvation is not discoverable by means of human wisdom. Apart from the sovereign work of God through God the Spirit, no one, not one of us in this room would ever have believed upon Jesus Christ. You say, really? Is that the case? Yeah. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for a minute. I just want to read a rather lengthy section for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because this will help us if we're listening. Notice what Paul says to the Corinthian church in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross, that phrase just means the gospel, the reality that Jesus Christ became man, died a, a, a sinner's death, even though he wasn't a sinner, and, 
And He bore the sins of those whom He would save on the cross. That's the word of the cross. That's foolishness to those who are perishing. In other words, the word of the cross to the natural human heart, to the dead human heart, it's just absolute moronic words. It makes no sense. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, which was all of us. But to us who are being saved, notice it doesn't say, but to us who are intellectual enough to understand it and work it out and solve the problem and get it all in our minds right, to to us who are saving ourselves, no, it says to those who are being saved, that is, someone outside of you is doing something, the gospel, the word of the cross is the power of God. We only know it's the power of God because God has opened our eyes to the reality and we understand it had nothing to do with us. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And so Paul asked the question, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? In other words, where's the man who thinks on a worldly level? Where's the one who knows all the history and all the law? Where's the one who, who can debate every point according to the world's wisdom? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, by all those intellectual arguments, by all that highfalutin thinking, by all the great thinkers of the world, you can't even get to God. Why? Because it's foolish. God made it foolish. You can't get there that way. Because since, verse 21, in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God designed it that way. So God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You see, it's not that the message is foolish, it's that the wise who are worldly wise think it's foolish, and through that foolishness God saves people, and the worldly wise can't get saved through their wisdom. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom. He just means the Jews want somebody to say, show us a sign so that we'll believe. And the Greeks say, oh, we'll figure it out ourselves. You know who the Greeks are? That's all of us who aren't Jews. That's the idea. He said, but we preach Christ. And we don't just preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified. Crucified means that Christ was died for sins. And that's how justification comes before God. It comes through Christ. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews. That's a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. So consider your own calling. Consider your own salvation, he says, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. There's not many mighty, not many noble. In other words, look around you. You're not the, listen, we're not the sharpest bulbs. What are you saying? We're not the, we're not the smartest people around. I mean, we know that. And yet God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those that are strong. He's chosen the base things of the world to despise that God has chosen, the things that are not so that they might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. You see, we know who we are. We know it was all God. We have nothing to boast about. can't get there on your intellect, so you can't boast before God. No, it's by his doing, verse 30 says, 
It's by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus is the one who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's who we boast in. We boast in Christ. That had nothing to do with me. Why am I a believer and someone else isn't a believer? God. Paul says, when, when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come, chapter 2, with su- superiority of speech or, or wisdom. I didn't proclaim to you the, the testimony of God that way. No, I determined to know nothing among you except this, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the gospel. I don't need to try to be clever. I don't need to try to fix things. I don't need to try to fit every peg and every hole and answer all your questions. All I need to tell you is if you don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ, guess what? You're on the road to hell. It's as simple as that. It's as sad as that. It's as sobering as that. Paul says, I didn't come with clever arguments. I just came and preached Christ. I was with you in weakness. In fact, I was fearful. I was in much trembling. And my message and my preaching, they weren't with persuasive words of wisdom. It was just in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on wisdom of men, but it would rest on the power of God. This is what Jesus is thinking the father for back in Luke. The contrast of that passage in 1 Corinthians is, is clear, it is stark. The intellectually wisest of the world are fools. And the intellectual fools of the world are the wisest of all when they're in Christ. Not because of their own human intellect, but because of God's doing. Because of the sovereign, wise, outworking of God's will in His sovereign plan to save. And so Jesus says, I rejoice in this. I rejoice in the sovereignty of the Father. I rejoice that this was God's plan, which is such that only those whom He chooses are saved. No one knows the Son except the Father. The Father has given me everything. Jesus says, I've gotten everything, and only only the Father knows the Son. He gave it to me, therefore I'm the Son. You ought to know that. No one knows who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal it. God is opposed to the proud, beloved. But He gives grace to the humble. Worldly human wisdom is proud. Knowing you're a fool before God in your humanity, that's humility. That's humble wisdom. And that comes from God. So Jesus rejoices in the sovereignty of the Father. Number two, Jesus rejoices in His own supremacy. Jesus rejoices in His own supremacy. Notice verse 22. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom He wills to reveal Him. This is God is sovereign, and Jesus has a place in that sovereign plan, and His place is the one of supremacy. 
Within the triune wisdom of the Godhead, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son have made it such that the Son is supreme. Not supreme in character, not supreme in nature. They are one God. And yet here in the outworking of the redemptive plan of God and for all eternity, Jesus is supreme and Jesus will bring all glory given to him and give it to the Father. All things here means every circumstance in the created universe have been handed over to Jesus. So in the sovereign plan of God, the plan of redemption was declared and the Son was given the supreme place so that in Him that plan would come to fruition through the working of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus clearly says, if you want to know God the Father, then you better know me. All of these people who want to say they have a relationship with God and yet reject Jesus Christ are lying. They're deceived by the evil one. You cannot have a relationship with God without having a relationship with the Supreme One who is Jesus Christ. No one knows the Son but the Father And in his sovereignty, Jesus already rejoices about his sovereignty. That means, sovereignty just simply means this. In a simple sense, God does whatever he wills to do according to his nature. Period. And so in his sovereignty, he has given all things to the Son. And since he knows the Son, he gave it to the only correct Son. He didn't give it to someone else. There is only one begotten Son, and no one knows the Father but the Son. And because the Son is every, or because the Son has everything, it is only the Son, therefore, who can reveal the Father, and that to only those that He chooses. So again, here is Jesus Christ highlighting and celebrating and exuberantly rejoicing at God's sovereign election. Jesus rejoices in the sovereign election of God the Father, and Jesus rejoices in the sovereign election through His supremacy. Those who know the Father are to only those to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And so let me say it again. The only way to know God is to know Jesus Christ. That is simply to say that there's no way to understand spiritual truth through human reason. You need to know the Son. Why? Because it's through the Son that spiritual truth is revealed. You've been with us for our study in Ephesians on Sunday evenings. We know that God elected, it says, before the foundation of the world. God chose before the foundation of the world those whom he would save, which means he chose those to whom he would reveal himself through salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul understands the human tension. The Apostle Paul understands what some of us here in this room are going through right now in our minds as we think about the reality of the sovereignty of God and the tension that goes on in our hearts, particularly in the heart of a fallen person, someone who's not saved, who seem to be saying that that's an unjust reality. It's an unjust situation. Because man can't extradite himself from that situation. It seems rather unjust. And so the Apostle Paul gives an answer, and I want to go there just really quickly. Romans chapter 9. 
It's such a profound answer. Some of you who understand your scriptures know exactly why I'm going here, because you probably have given this answer in your own heart and mind and to others. The Apostle Paul, extending this reality of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's choosing alone, comes to Romans chapter 9 and understands the heart conundrum that's going on even in his own people, the Jews. And beginning in verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? I mean, can we, can we point a finger at God and say He's not just if this is the way it is? Paul says, no, may it never be. We cannot do that. Why? Because he says to Moses, he goes back to the Old Testament, and he says, God said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul points to the very same thing that Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 10 is rejoicing in. The sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. God's the creator of it all. God can have mercy on whomever he has mercy. He can have compassion on whom he has compassion. He's not dependent upon you, defining his very nature and character. God is who he is by his own character and nature and has revealed himself to us through his word. We know who God is. We can't adjust that. And so he says, okay, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. In other words, Pharaoh, I raised you up to do this, and you hardened your heart, and it says in the scriptures, God hardened his heart. Well, the same sun that, the, the same sun that softens the wax is the same sun that hardens the clay. God says to Pharaoh, I I did this to you so that my power would be demonstrated through you. So Paul says, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Well, that doesn't seem to solve the problem, Paul. It, It only seems to make it worse. And so you say to me then, why does he still find fault then? Right? Why are we responsible then? Who who resists the will of God? I mean, can we Can we resist that? Paul says, on the contrary. Who are you? Who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? He's going back to the analogy of a potter. The pot doesn't tell the potter what it should be. It doesn't tell the clay. The clay doesn't speak to the potter and say, hey, guess what? I'd really like to be... I really like to be a pitcher in a king's palace, not a chamber pot under the bed. Potter doesn't get that option. On the contrary, who are you? Doesn't the potter, verse 21, have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor and another for common use? Paul says, instead, you ought to think of it this way. What if God... Verse 22, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, what if God willing to crush you because you deserve it for your sinfulness and rejection of God? What if God in that sense willing to demonstrate his wrath and power, make that known? What if, what if instead God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In other words, what if 
God wants you to understand and see His mercy in its fullest light. And the only way for you to see that is God's patience on a vessel of wrath like yourself. And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy. What, what vessels of mercy? The ones that told the potter that they wanted to be made a vessel of mercy? Something for honor? No, no. Which he prepared beforehand for glory. Who's that? That's us, even us, whom he also called. Not from Jews only. and It's not an external thing, but from among the Gentiles. In other words, not from Jews, but Greeks also. See, again, Paul just keeps highlighting the reality of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. In other words, apart from God's sovereign choice, apart from God's sovereign act of regeneration of the spiritually dead, no one is saved. No one. Why? Because there's no capacity within our spiritual deadness to either see the light or come to the light. There's no capacity within our spiritual deadness to see the truth or come to the truth. Spiritually dead do not do spiritually living things. The spiritually dead only do dead things. They cannot save themselves. Now here's the argument. Someone's going to say, well, I wasn't there in Adam. You say we all sinned in Adam, right? That's what Paul says a little earlier. We're all in Adam. We all sinned. Through Adam came sin. I wasn't there with Adam. So why am I held accountable? In other words, I deny the reality of the federal headship of Adam in which we were all there sinning. I wasn't there, so I deny federal headship. I say, great. If you're going to deny the federal headship of Adam and that you weren't there when sin happened, then you can't have Jesus Christ either. Why? Because you weren't there. You weren't there when he died. And yet you want to claim him as your savior? You want to claim his federal headship when it comes to you being in him, but you don't want to claim him as the federal headship in Adam where you by are guilty before God. Can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. The factual truth is that we were all in Adam at the fall. We say, I wouldn't have done it if I was there. Yes, you would have because you were there. You were there in Adam. And therefore, we're all guilty of rejecting God. We are all in need of God to save us. And the only, that only comes through Jesus Christ by the sovereign, eternal, and just choice of God. And so Jesus rejoices in Luke chapter 10. He rejoices in the sovereignty of his Father. He rejoices in that sovereignty playing out in the supremacy of himself, whereby he reveals himself to those whom he chooses. And then number three, he expresses exuberant joy in all who believe in the saints. Verse 23 and 24, turning to his disciples, he said to them privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and didn't see them, to hear the things which you hear. They didn't hear them. You see, Jesus, after thanking the Father for His sovereignty and election and for thanking Him for the supreme power that Jesus Christ has, Jesus rejoices over 
us. Why? Because we are so privileged. We're so privileged. Knowing Christ because he has opened our eyes to see and our ears to hear proves that we are blessed. For centuries before the promise of the coming Messiah was fulfilled, it was spoken of through the prophets and through prophecies. But now Jesus is here. He's on the scene. And he would offer himself for sin and he would conquer the forces of darkness once and for all whom God was saving. Death would no longer carry the eternal sting that it carries for all who reject. All things are now under his power. There was full forgiveness of sin. There is eternal life given to those who believe. And so Jesus turns to the 70 and says, you're blessed. You're blessed. The Christian is in the group with the 70. We're part of the blessed group. We are part of the redeemed few. Why? Because our eyes have been opened and we have understood it by the power of the Spirit. God has humbled us. The Son has shown us the Father. We have been granted eyes to see and ears to hear, faith to believe. We are the truly blessed because we have seen what many of old did not see. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses who have gone before us believing. They, they believed and yet they died in faith without receiving the promise. Hebrews 11 verse 13. What promise? The promise of the coming Messiah. It isn't that they didn't believe in Jesus. They just never got the chance to see Jesus in the flesh. God in the flesh. They died before he came. But they believed. They welcomed him from a distance. Same way we welcome him. From a distance. They confessed him even though they were not blessed to see him. And then the writer of Hebrews says, but we're more blessed. We're even more blessed than that. God provides something better for us, Hebrews 11 verse 40. Here's what it says. God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. They believed and yet God was bringing in other sheep into the fold. That's us. See, we, we know the mysteries of God. We know the unrevealed in the ages past mysteries of God. They have been made to us today who believe through His Word. The 70 are joyful. They're joyful because they have the Gospel and they could accomplish much through the power of Christ. But Jesus said, don't, don't rejoice in the reality of earthly successes like that. Rejoice in the fact that God has saved you. Rejoice in what God has done. See, don't, don't rejoice in what you do. Rejoice in what God does. Rejoice in the sovereign election to save. 
that God has made a plan, that God is saving. Rejoice in the supreme power of Christ to save, that God made a way and it's through Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ came and rejoice that in that sovereign plan, your eyes were open to see him and believe. Let that be our joy. I think if we, if we thought about our salvation in those terms and in that way, we, we would see the world like Jesus sees it. A harvest. Harvest that's plentiful. And in our thankfulness to God in saving us, we would just go tell others about Christ. Let that, beloved, be our joy. That's real joy. That's real joy. That's the joy of the Lord. Let that be our strength. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that while these truths may be difficult for our fallen logic to grasp, Let us not rest in our fallen logic. Let us rest in what your word declares. Not trying to put words in your mouth, but just resting at the wall of worship because you are not like us. That your ways are higher than our ways. That you do what you do according to the grand plan of your divine wisdom born out of the perfection of your nature and that no one can ever level a complaint against you that is worthy to be heard because you are perfect, righteous, holy, and just in all ways. Lord, may that be on our minds always, not with prideful disdain for others, but with compassionate humility pleading with others to believe, praying that you would open their eyes, that they would understand, knowing all along that without that, they are blind and on a road to destruction. Oh Lord, this morning as we hear these words, may they penetrate our heart. May those sitting among us who have rejected Jesus Christ and who even now are still rejecting, may they turn to you and know life. All for your glory and praise. In our Savior's name, Jesus Christ, we pray.